Welcome to the Powered by Age Age Friendly City Zoomcast Reality Style Podcast. We are movers and shakers, shaking up the old notion of silent, helpless, invisible seniors. This is a new series of podcasts funded by the City of Vancouver and the 411 Senior Center Society. As PBA AFC ambassadors, we raise awareness, share our original stories and poems, inform, advocate, and involve seniors in discussing important social issues. In short, these podcasts will help us, you, in creating an age-friendly city for Vancouver today, tomorrow the world. You can hear us everywhere podcasts are heard. I'm going to start our meeting today. I'm Charlotte Farrell, the host for Powered by Age, a senior-led podcast program where we discuss issues of uh, how we want to see seniors regarded as we build an age-friendly city. Uh, as we usually start, we ask each person to just briefly introduce themselves with just an adjective or so about yourself so that we can honor the time that our guests have to be with us today. So we'll start with uh, Jesse is on the line. Hi, I'm uh, Jesse from CJSF. I'm the public affairs coordinator there. Uh, and I am uh, excited. There's my adjective. Uh, Judith. Hi, everyone. I'm Judith and Rainey, and I'm with uh, 411 Senior Center and South Granville Senior Center. And I'm really excited about today's podcast meeting and looking forward to it. Robin. Hi, I'm Robin. I also am with CJSF. Uh, campus Community Radio. I'm one of the small group mentors for the, the podcast. And uh, my adjective is ravenous, which is Ooh. why I have my video off so that you don't have to see me eat my lunch. <laughs> uh, great. Uh, today, uh, as you know, Vancouver has been dubbed as the most expensive place to live in Canada, according to Mercer's annual cost of living survey. Many seniors have to work in order to live here, and many are showing that we're never too old to work. So today our presentation team is Leslie Hebert and Gail Harwood. They will introduce themselves and introduce the guests that they have invited and are interviewing. Okay, Leslie? Okay, I'm Leslie Hebert. I'm a teacher and writer from New Westminster, and my adjective is nervous because it's the first time I've done a webcast interview. Okay, and Gail? Yes, hi, I'm Gail Harwood. I'm a member of 411 Seniors. I'm also a 411 Seniors and retired teacher and writer. And um, it is my absolute pleasure to introduce Don Davey, who's actually my MP, because I live in... Uh, Vancouver Kingsway, his riding since 2008. And just like to say a couple words about Don. He lived in Alberta, has his law degree in, from Alberta and practiced law there. And then he and his family moved to Vancouver in 1991. And from 1992 uh, to 2008, he was the director of legal services for the Teamsters of Canada. And this is, and as I mentioned, he was elected to the House of Commons in 2008. He was the chair of the Mount Pleasant Parent Advisory, uh, secretary treasurer of the Meridian uh, Culture Society, and, provided, and this provides public space for uh, child care, church, and cultural events. Some of the various things that Don has been uh, active in our neighborhood is uh, Tools for Peace, Natana Cooperative, actually I know these places, and uh, the, Dip and the uh, Dippins uh, Community Group. And he's also... Um, 
So Don, how are you? How are you doing today? I'm doing really well, and uh, I guess the word that I want to use is I'm honored to uh, to be part of your podcast today. So thank you so much for inviting me. And likewise. So get down to the uh, nitty gritty. Um, you know, boy, especially with the pandemic, the economic ups and downs are a little crazy uh, this year. So what economic issues are faced by seniors and how, how are they a part of the political debate up, up on the hill in Ottawa? Well, thank you for that question. I think it's really important. I, I think, first of all, I, I would say that I think seniors' issues are really everyone's issues. Um, I think the, the very same challenges that face all of us uh, manifest themselves in some way or another with seniors. But, I, of course, I think there are some certain specific challenges and nuances and special considerations that that obviously affect people who um, who are seniors who are who are not working or who are retired um, <clears throat> in terms of what, what's part of the political debate um, I think it changes um, you know so housing I think I think is one of the foundational issues in the country and I think it's a particular importance to seniors who are offering fixed incomes and of course as health uh, conditions change over time. The ability to age in place, I think, becomes a really significant issue. Um, access to quality, affordable health care is also an issue, I think, that is facing seniors. That's very much part and parcel of the political debate in Ottawa. You know, my party, the NDP, and myself as health critic have been championing an expansion of our public health care system for a number of years now, including pharmacare. And I think our use and dependence on medication goes up, obviously, as we age. So I think it's of particular importance to seniors. And I think income security, you know, that faces everybody. As you pointed out, Vancouver is extremely expensive for everybody, whether you're a single student or a young family or a middle-aged couple or, or a senior. But it's particularly, I think, acute for seniors because, again, of the fixed income. Um, right now, I think the long-term care crisis that we've all seen over the last three or four months that was exposed during the COVID issue, yeah. I, I think has really highlighted, I think a couple of those issues, it's highlighted housing and it's highlighted healthcare for seniors. And I'm hoping that um, the attention it's gotten at the national stage will be sufficient for us to actually uh, develop a real concrete national plan so that we can actually start making some real progress with short-term, medium-term, and long-term benchmarks. Um, and so that's why I, I've, I and my party have long believed we need a comprehensive national senior strategy that addresses all the major issues facing seniors, and again, with measurable targets so that we can actually see if we're making progress towards attaining results for seniors mm -hmm. and, and you know when we take all of these issues and now stick them in the workplace and given the housing issue uh, and and frankly the um, health issues of seniors um what are the um potential health benefits or potential issues of seniors in the workforce well what a great question you know we we often talk about retirement and and income pension security but but I don't think we get it. We give enough attention to the actual question of working um, as a senior. So um, my first comment uh, is that I believe that we as a society need to firmly 
retain the 65-year-old benchmark for retirement. Now, if people want to work beyond that, I think that's excellent. But I think they also should be able to retire at 65 if they want to as well. And I, I think that it, it should really firmly be a matter of choice for each person, not of economic or social compulsion. You know, I think of in Vancouver Kingsway, it's an east side riding, uh, historically real blue collar riding. And, you know, people who do physical work for a living, blue collar work, uh, it's very difficult to do that physical work once you hit 65. So I, I think we need to also recognize that there's differences. Professionals or people who do office work may have longer careers than someone who is, you know, on the tools or, you know, hammering uh, drywall for a living. Um, I think it's also very important. The 65-year benchmark is very important for long-term planning, both for government and for people. We need to have an age that people in their 20s and 30s in government long-term can establish for, for long-term fiscal planning because people need to know when they're able to retire so that they can plan their, um, you know, their financing. So if I get to the, your question, the advantages of, I think, seniors working past 65 are obviously society gets excellent and experienced uh, workers. Uh, we have a preservation of experience and, and the opportunity for mentorship, you know, which I don't think we do enough of um, as a society. We don't value that lifelong experience that people have and make sure that we can transfer that to younger people. Um, obviously, seniors are very capable of making contributions to our economy. Um, you know, as they say, 65 is the new 50. So people at 65 now are physically, mentally, um, energetically um, able to, to work if they want to. I think that working keeps seniors sharp and active and, and it's better for their long-term finances. Uh, especially with the ever-increasing extension of, of our life expectancy. You know, when I was growing up in the 1960s and 70s, you know, people were living into their early 70s. Yeah. Well, now people are living to their early 90s. Yeah. And quality of life is different as well. You know, people are healthy and vibrant well into their 80s and 90s sometimes. So um, so I, I, think, I think it's something that we have to make sure is an option for seniors. But again... Uh, if people want to retire at 65, we have to make sure they've got the financial ability to do so. Yeah, and you know, on that, that's been uh, on my mind that uh, the old European system of, uh, and, and also this uh, extends onto the uh, systems of the uh, Aboriginal civilizations of elders and, um, and people who are learning or master apprentice. And I, I felt that... Uh, I'm, I'm still in, in teaching to some extent um, because I can give a lot of skills. There, there's a lot of tricks up my sleeve uh, as an older uh, teacher. And there is some um, scuttlebutt. So I'm, I'm wondering what are the potential economic advantages and disadvantages of increasing senior participation in the workforce? Uh, I was just reading some stats from BC that 20% of um, people who go to uh, work BC are 55 and up. Well, well, again, yeah, I think, um, I think the more productive um, and experienced and skilled members of our society are contributing to our economy, the better. Um, 
again, I, I, I know I've repeated this a few times, but it's on my mind because you might remember a few years ago in the dying days of the Harper government, they wanted to extend the normal retirement age from 65 to 67. Um, and I think that was, um, you know, there's a lot of blowback from that. And, and I, I think 65 is still a, a good age. Um, but I think we need to vastly improve our income security programs. You know, our OAS and our CPP are not designed to maintain people with a comfortable retirement. And of course, again, when I was in my early career, uh, most employers had a defined benefit pension plan for their workers. So you could, you had your company pension, you had a little OAS uh, CPP, and because life was more affordable, you could actually save more. So those three sources of income basically allowed people to retire with some comfort at 65. That's not the reality today. Most employers don't have um, uh, uh, defined benefit retirement plans. You might also remember that under the current government, liberals are proceeding with legislation uh, that would allow employers to switch their defined benefit pension plans to defined contribution plans, uh, to, or they're called target benefit plans, which basically is just like a group RSP. You put your money in and you have no idea if 20 or 30 years down the road, whether that'll be sufficient for you. So I'm a big fan of improving our CPP. I think it should be doubled. Um, and I also think OAS rates are far too low. So um, I, I just want to turn for a second to um, some of the potential health benefits and issues. Um, depending on the job, keeping seniors more involved and active, I think is really good for their health. And it's as a health critic, I learned early on that the number one correlation of good health with seniors is community connection. So it's it's not our healthcare system. It's not our it's not access to medicine. It's not um, exercise. As important as those are, it's community connection. So to the extent that you know, active, energetic, engaged seniors uh, want to be able to continue contributing in, in the workforce, I think it's not only good for the economy, and not only good for them. I think it's good for their health. So it's a zero sum game, Don. That um, uh, in terms of uh, are, are we taking away jobs from uh, younger people in terms of economic advantages and disadvantages? How do you, how do you read that? Well, I, I think there's some rationale to that. Um, you know, the idea of the longer that uh, experienced workers are in the workplace, that can be in some circumstances a bit of a barrier to to expansion um, of, of younger workers. I'm thinking, of, let's say, in university tenure positions, you, you often will see that. If there's a limited number of tenured positions, then uh, younger PhD students can't get access to the positions. But, gen, uh, you know, generally, I, I, I think it's a bit of a false, uh, a bit of a red herring. Um, I think, by and large, um, our society and our economy are best served when skilled, engaged people contribute economically. And I, I think that should be the, the, the policy that guides us. Um, and you know what, if, if there are sort of uh, not enough positions in certain areas, well, maybe we just need to in, in, increase them. Okay, thank you very much, Don. Sure and an honor to have you today. Thank you. It was a real pleasure. Thank you for your great questions and thanks for all the work you do in our community. Thank you. And would you have a few minutes to uh, take a couple of questions from people? Sure. Pat? I'd, I would like to say that I certainly agree they, sh they should raise the OAP. That was Ruth. Yeah. 
Did you have a question, uh, Robin? Uh, not a question per se, but I, I think what's really relevant um, to this particular podcast um, is what you said about um, seniors' issues are everybody's issues. Um, and that, you know, in terms of building an age-friendly city and um, having all of us taken care of in the way that we need to be taken care of, um, if we started to look at how uh, seniors' issues are, you know, kind of relegated to the side or, you know, whatever that, whatever that, that means and looks like, um, rather than, than centering them, uh, we'd all be better off. And so I really appreciated the, the lens there. Uh, Pat? Well, I live in a housing co-op, and um, I've been involved with housing co-ops for a long time. I'm on a committee with CHFPC called Aging in Place, and it's mainly to look at ways people, as they get older, how can they stay in their housing co-op, which might mean some adjustments to their unit and all, and, of course, that needs money and all like that. But the other thing is that, you know, most of us are in co-ops where our operating agreement with CMHC will has either already expired or will in the next few years. And once that's expired, then the subsidies that uh, CMHC provided for many people um, will no longer be there. And while I'm hearing all levels of government talk about more co-op housing, I think there also has to be some understanding about co-op housing that exists now, that we're still in a um, sort of a critical place. And, um, and then there's, like my co-op, it's on uh, uh, city land, and we're trying to work out a, um, an agreement with the city. But what they want to do is raise the minimum income that people have in order to be in, in co-ops, which means it's going to eliminate quite a few people. So I just want to know, hear what you have to say about that. Well, you, you touched on one of my favorite topics and my favorite word, which is co-op housing. And um, so here's my position on it. I, I, um, I agree with you completely, by the way, that uh, the government, the federal government in particular, with their other levels of government, need to ensure that the existing co-op housing stock is is stabilized and, and let's face it most operating agreements that have expired have resulted in a lot of co-ops having to charge market or near market rates so it's gotten away from the original idea of co-ops which is to provide security of tenure and to link rent to income like i don't believe anybody in the country should be paying more than 25 or 30 percent of their of their income to housing so but I, but where i'll say i think there's a real um a real gap is that the federal government has not been doing anything not only to support as much to support current co-op but to develop the next tranche of co-op housing i think there's there's a housing crisis in this country before covid this was i would i would say the number one issue ne next to climate crisis i would say housing those were the two number one issues in, in in the country because they're foundational you know there's a thousand issues in politics but some of them are fundamental. If you don't have access to secure, affordable, decent housing, your ability to participate meaningfully in society um, and to fully reach your potential is affected. So I'm a housing first person. So one thing I think that the federal government needs to do is they need to create a national uh, co-op program similar to what happened in the 70s and 80s. And I'm talking super ambitious. Like I'd like to build 500,000 
units of co-op housing across this country partnering with provinces and cities you know the city gives the land on long leases the province helps with the building and the federal government can finance just like we did it before and i and i want those co-ops to be true to the idea of co-ops which is again rent linked to income now it's not for everybody i know co-op living is not for everybody but it's a very successful tried and true model you know in vancouver kingsway we have trout lake caslow gardens um still creek um we have the indigenous co-op we've got flesher like and and when rising i go star. when rising, i rising star is where i am oh yes well well uh, lovely and and i gotta tell you they're the most successful communities in our community um i go knock on their doors and i say how long have you been here they go 18 years 20 years 22 years 19 years because here's what co-ops do they bring together a diversity of family arrangements. There's singles, there's couples, there's young couples with kids, there's seniors. It brings together people across socioeconomic um, areas. So it's a nice mixture of people so you don't have that ghettoization that can occur. And finally, you have aging in place. You know, people move in as a couple, they, they have a one bedroom. They have a child or two, they move to a two or three bedroom. Then when the kids move out, they move back to two or one. So what a wonderful way to keep people in community, aging in place, connected with security of tenure. So I'd like to see, I don't understand why the federal government doesn't, you know, put together a two or three or four billion dollar federal program to, to have a renaissance of co-op building because we've done it before. Right. And, and we're seeing the results of that. So that's my monologue on co-op housing i'm a huge fan of co-ops uh, don has got to go to a co-op because he is <laughs> delivering uh food baskets i just wanted to say that um years ago i worked in co-op housing i set up um, the first um education programs here and then we which were adopted from the toronto co-op housing federation and then we expanded a lot and then we started the we were the a, a bunch of us were the were the predecessors to the Co-op Housing Federation of BC. But at that time, there was a lot of countries um, looking at Canada as a model of what, about co-op housing. You know, it was really, it was in its heyday, it was really great. And you're right, there was, there was hundreds of co-ops that were built across the country. And, uh, and some who are, of course, some of the same people, me being one of them, still in, still in the co-op housing. So. Well, it's funny, if, if I may, um, and thank you for your leadership in that. It's, it kind of is a nice place to end because it, I think it draws together a lot of these challenges facing seniors. So it deals with housing, it deals with aging in place, it deals with community and community connection, and it deals with income security. And so, um, uh, you know, I don't think the private sector is, I, I think it, it's obvious that the private sector is not able to provide um, sufficient affordable housing for people. So I'd like to see, I call it public enterprise. You know, I, I see a big role for private enterprise, but I'd like to see um, a really good commitment to public enterprise in this country. And I think a lot of the problems we see today are because over the last 40 years, we've seen a, a, a decrease, a diminution in, in, in public enterprise by this ideology that the private sector will solve everything. Well, it doesn't. I don't think so. And, and so um, 
that's that's sort of the voice I'm bringing to Ottawa, and and uh, I want to really thank you all for this. I'm sorry I can't stay longer because right, I, I've got to go deliver some food to people in the community, but I'm happy to come back anytime you like and and speak longer if you want. And please contact me if there's anything that you'd like to give me your ideas or concerns on on this or any other subject. Thank you so much for your time, Don. And uh, Don is the first of three guests uh, speaking to this important topic of seniors who are earning or creating income after the quote unquote so-called retirement age. So now I'd like to introduce my friend, Ruth Kozak. At the age of 96, Ruth is a working senior. Not 96, 86. 90, 86. Didn't I say 86? Sorry, Ruth. <laughs> I said that. Okay. You gave her 10 years. <laughs> <laughs> no. um, busy leading what she calls a righteous life. So welcome, Ruth. Thank you for coming today. Thanks. I'm so excited of you inviting me. Um, I, I'm 86 going on 68, actually. <laughs> Okay, so could you tell us a little bit more about yourself and what you do? Okay, well, uh, I, I quit. I worked in daycare for almost 35 years, but I, I worked in daycare full-time up until I was 65, and then part-time until I was in my early 70s. But basically, my, my main thing that I always wanted to be was a full-time writer. So... In 93, I started doing, teaching writing classes for the Vancouver School Board Night School, which I have continued to do on my own since they closed down the continuing ed program. Um, I'm a writing instructor. I'm a writer myself. I've had one book published and I'm a travel journalist. So I've had dozens and dozens of travel articles and travel and travel and writing are my main things that I love to do in my life. Yeah. So how important is our financial considerations uh, as you continue working? Well, I wouldn't be able to do half the things that I would like to do on the, on the, on the small amount of OAP, which actually I live in a tiny, tiny bachelor suite, which takes up the major almost more than, well, my, like my, my OAP is only 12 something and my rent is almost a a thousand a month so there's not much left over there I get a little bit on CPP but that goes for paying bills like hydro and stuff so if I wasn't doing all the extra stuff that I do I wouldn't have a coin to my name basically so I really am very adamant about the fact they need in the cost of living now going up so high they really need to be raising the OAP for sure so you have various income streams. It seems to be uh, rather complex. So, you know, how, what are these income streams that you have apart from OAP and CPP? Well, I, I, I do, I do a writing group on Monday mornings, which I charge them only a $5 drop in. So that's, that's some of my grocery money there. Um, I also t do classes for Brock House, which is, of course, a senior center. Um, I used to have about 14 in my group, and so I'd get a reasonable big, you know, five or $600 paycheck at the end. But now because of COVID, they've limited it to six. So I'm doing a tiny group this summer and probably another tiny group in the fall if they're able to. But... Um, so without, you know, and without this extra money coming in, I wouldn't have any to put away. And thank goodness for the CERB 
yeah. program for self-employed people because that's given me a chance to sort of catch up on bills and things like that. Yeah, so could you tell us a little bit more about the SERB grant and how it works? Well, you have to make, you have to show that you make at least $5,000 a year on your self-employment. And I just was just in over the, over the limit. I think I had 5,083 or something. Um, and you can apply, I've only applied twice. So I've had two payments of $2,000 each, but I'm planning to make one more because I'm not really sure if my classes are going to go in the fall, if we have an increase in this uh, virus thing. So do you have to apply each month? You have to apply each month. I know my son's a musician and, you know, he's been relying on it a lot and a couple of other friends I know that have been really relying on it because they're self-employed people. So, um, but I didn't want to sort of go overboard with it because, you know, I just live alone, etc. But I will make another uh, application. I, I can apply one again next, um, the beginning of April, I can make another application. And that should tide me over just in case my classes don't happen in the fall. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it sounds as if COVID-19 really has impacted your income quite significantly. Well, yes, because I was also supposed to do classes at the Century House, and that, mm -hmm. of course, had to be canceled. And, you know, so, yeah. Yeah, great. Thank you. Also, um, I, I, also do, I also do a number of book readings, and, mm -hmm. and usually, like, in the summer, I'll travel around. Last summer, I went to, to uh, Kamloops and, Ver and Vernon and did some book readings, but, of course, again, that also is, is off the, out of the mark question mm -hmm. right now. Yeah, and then it seems to me you've told me you get some small checks from various uh, I get programs. I get a little bit from from Access Copyright for any published work I have, and the other one I forget I forget the name of the other one for for uh, books that you have in the public library. Mm. It, when people borrow your books, they they it's not it doesn't amount to very much, as, mm. you know, but it's 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 a nice little bonus every once in a while you get that. Yeah, it all adds up. I find myself, um, I have a lot of different irons in a lot of different pots and I get a little bit from here and a little bit from there and it, it kind of adds up at the end of the yeah. day, right? Yeah. Great. Thank you, Ruth. Uh, do we have time for uh, some questions for Ruth? Does anybody have questions? Could you explain a little bit more about access copyrights? We have a few writers within our group who may not know what that is. Oh, well, it, it, you can Google it online and, ch and it will tell you um, if you've had anything published, like I've had quite a few random poems published that has not published online. It has to be in a print publication. Anything that you've had published in a print publication, you can count that. And, the, and then it adds up like and every year they send they, every year they'll send you out the list. If you have anything new to add to it, you add add the new things to the list and how many things you've got on there. I think it goes back to about 1993 or something. It goes back quite a long way, all the things you've had published in a print publication. They don't count um, Kindle things because I've, I've, now I've got my novel published on Kindle as well as the hard copy, but they, don't, they haven't been counting Kindle. So, yeah. And it's, it's good to know about because you do get a little bit extra each year from that. 
And what about the library? How do people go online to the library system to find out about getting payments for that or where? Well, I just I just Google uh, Google at Access Copyright and you'll see where to apply to. And the one if the one for I forget the the I forget the actual name of the other one where you have a published book that's in the library, but that one also um, maybe Canadian authors can tell you what that one is. I just forgotten what the title of that one is, but they also pay you if you have your book books in the library. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So anyway, I I mean I really rely I really rely on my writing groups a lot. Pat, did you have a question? Um, I was just, okay, what was, I was wondering is, you said that you get this um, payment maybe once a year for books that are in the library that um, someone has borrowed, so they have- Public lending rights. Okay. It's public lending rights, that's what it is. So do they pay it per, per lend, per loan? Once a year. But, how, but depending on how many times the book has been uh, taken out? Yeah, I think that's the way it works. Okay. Thank you. Well, I'm inspired by your travel writing and picturing uh, that soon we'll have these travel bans lifted and you'll be able to be in I know. For I usually go to Greece every year and I'm just like dying to be there, but I can't. So. So, and I, I haven't done much travel writing in this last year, but but uh, hope to catch up with that because that's another means of my income is is the travel writing. Yeah, I think we'd all like to travel more. I'm getting a little bit of cabin fever here. So, yeah. So, thank you so much, Ruth. Thank you for inviting for coming me. in. And thank you for the information. I've posted some information in the chat for access copyright and public lending rights. Those are the Zoom links. So we can come back to those afterwards. Um, so now I'd like to turn the program back over to Gail, who's going to introduce our third guest. Hello, uh, back again, everybody. Um, it is absolutely my pleasure to uh, introduce uh, Isabel McKenzie. Isabel, I was at a, a Retired Teachers Association conference, and I met you there, and we spoke afterwards. But uh, I want to talk a little bit about Isabel. She, you, Isabel, have worked on the front lines in seniors' care, long-term care facilities, facilities, um, volunteer services for 20 years, and then you went to university, right? Or was that during university? The reverse. Unmute yourself. <laughs> Mute yourself. No, I went to university first and then I uh, did my career. Oh, wow. So what did you study? Uh, I studied uh, social work. I studied uh, political science. I studied um, in uh, business administration, healthcare administration, wow. and public policy. Wow. Yeah. So then, then it was the healthcare leadership uh, from the University of Toronto, and that's your other credential. But you served on national boards, including the BC Medical Services Commission, the Canadian 
Home Care Association, um, providers of BC, care aids, etc. Um, and so, and then March 14, uh, March uh, 16th, I believe, 2014, you became seniors advocate after all those years. So, um, one thing I'd like to ask you, uh, Isabel, is uh, what can seniors contribute to the workplace? Well, where do we start? So I think uh, just listening to the conversation that preceded my coming onto the Zoom call uh, from Ruth, it's quite apparent that uh, there's a significant amount of contribution uh, that a person can make uh, past the age of 65. I think the obvious things that I think are welcome in any workplace um, and should be potentially recognized more than they are is simply the wisdom that comes with age, uh, with experience, uh, more than with age, but they sort of go hand in glove. And I think that upon reflection, I think that with that wisdom comes perspective. I think that with um, experience comes the ability to put things in context. I think that the current pandemic that we're going through and the current um, uh, sort of sacrifices we're being called upon to make. I think that when we look to the older people in our society, we actually find reassurance. Um, it's the younger people that are panicking. Um, and it's because you just gain that sense of perspective, at, which I think is important in any workplace. I think you need a workplace that reflects a variety of perspectives and experiences. And, you know, you need the uh, the young people with their eagerness and, but you know, you need people who can bring an element of good judgment, um, of calmness, of experience, of wisdom. I think that that is something that can be contributed as well. And you know, it's funny, I was reflecting when thinking about this question, it's 30 years ago or more, I think I did my master's thesis on I looked at uh, sick leave utilization in the home care in in home care in uh, home and community care home support, and you know the theory was that uh, the older worker uh, would be sick more often, right? That's that was the the stereotype, anyhow. And so there were about 500 people observation points in the study, so 500 people, and the oldest person in the in that group was 70 years of age and she worked full-time and she didn't miss a single day in the year that I studied to, to sick leave. That th this notion that older workers will be sick more often was not actually proven out when you looked at the data. The, the younger people tended to have more, there were other things that were more predictive of absences than, uh, than age. And so I thought, hmm, that's interesting. And that was sort of at the beginning journey of my career learning to challenge myself around stereotypes uh, of older adults writ large and particularly older adults in the workplace. And I think the other thing we need to think about is that as, um, you know, if we reflect back 60 or 70 years ago, maybe not quite so far ago, um, people, started their careers, their permanent attachment to the labor force much earlier. Um, and we're going to have to come to grips with the fact that if we don't start our careers really until we're 
late 20s, early 30s. My story of going, you know, high school, university work is not really the common um, trajectory anymore. People are going to be working longer and people are living healthier and they need to be uh, contributing. I think, you know, we heard from Ruth as an example of someone who works in part for the income, but clearly in part, Ruth also works because it's engaging and, and she wants to be engaged. And I think that that's a big uh, part of it as well. And so I think there's a lot that the older adult brings to the workplace. You know, it's interesting, a friend of mine, uh, she retired from her government job and she was so afraid. She was still below 60 and she said, I'm so afraid I'm not gonna get a job. And I said, well, you know, and I owned a bookstore at one time and my best work, my best employees were older people. Um, and they showed up all the time and they did the job. And I said, you know, there's a little secret uh, among business owners, at least the milieu I was in. And it was, um, you know, hire a woman over the age of 55 and you're gonna get somebody who shows up all the time, does their job, doesn't freak out, it's a good scene. Um, and so the big question here is, how common is the attitude of ageism among employees and employers in the workplace or in society general, generally? I think it's quite prolific. Um, and I think the challenge in addressing ageism is that some of our ageist attitudes are really cloaked in uh, benevolence and or paternalism. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when we look at some of the uh, stereotyping that exists and the uh, prejudices that exist based on a person's uh, ethnicity or religion or sexual orientation, those are easy to challenge um, because, yeah, you everybody is the same and same opportunities, etc. When we look at some of the elements of ageism, the challenge is that some of it is based on society's perceptions of kindness, right? Oh, you know, uh, you've earned the right to relax. Well, I don't want to relax. I want to keep going. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, oh, let me do that for you. Uh, actually, I can do that for myself. And I think it's also challenging because. Um, we are as different at whatever age, in every age bracket. So we're all different at 45, we're all different at 85, right? So in 85, actually, there's gonna be people who will say, okay, uh, thanks, over to you, I'm happy to let you do that for me. And then others who, no, I wanna do that for myself. Um, and, and so it makes it, I think, a little more challenging um, to really uh, get a, an understanding of Part of, and part of what I have wrestled with for a good part of my career, because I have worked in um, long-term care, assisted living, but mostly in home care, which is people living at home. And with my social work background, the, the, the rights of a person to choose to live at risk. And that's one of our more difficult concepts to grasp um, when it comes to older adults um, is when we see somebody choosing to live at what we perceive as risk, right? Uh, yep, 
we can go in and do an assessment and there's no doubt that this person would be better cared for in a long-term care home than they are at home. Uh, but they don't want that. Mm -hmm. And they understand the risk and they understand that they may fall, they may shorten their life by living at home, but it's their life and it's their choice. And, you know, I, I talk about, we wouldn't think of saying to a 27 year old, you can't, you can't ride a motorcycle. I guess actually it should be about a 20 year old. You can't ride a motorcycle because the statistics show us if you ride this motorcycle, you know, the odds are you're going to have an accident and it's going to have a very serious outcome. But we will say that to somebody at 87 about living alone, right? Or living at home that, you know, there's a risk uh, you're going to fall uh, and really you need to. So I think that that's one of our challenge, one of our biggest uh, challenges around addressing ageism. I think, I hope, um, as the boomer generation, which has shaped a lot, uh, moves in, you know, the beginning of the boomer generation is about 73, 74. Uh, the tail end is about 58. You know, it's a broad uh, group. I think as that group pushes more into mid 70s, late 70s, early 80s, mid 80s, um, we're going to see more acceptance uh, and less ageism. But, you know, the older adult for the foreseeable future of many, 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 many decades, at least in projections, are still going to be a minority. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and what's, yeah, and so you said there's going to be more exception. So what are the um, particular factors that would contribute uh, to that change in attitude? How can these attitudes be changed? I think as more, as the percentage of people who are older adults that see themselves as capable, as that number grows, and it will grow, as the boomer generation starts to push through more of the age pyramid, they're just not going to put up with um, the sort of the labeling that they're not capable of doing things. And they're going to want to assert their independence. The generation that's 80 plus now, Ruth notwithstanding, again, it's not a, <laughs> uh, uh, it's not everybody, but as a, as an, as a cohort, particularly women, particularly over 85, yeah. my mother. there tends to be, uh, it tends to be a, it's more generational around just accepting authority more. Mm -hmm. So now you're going to have the boomer generation who've challenged authority all of their lives pushing up. And I think they're going to challenge that. We haven't really seen that yet because the, the boomer generation, I mean, in my world, 74 is not old at all. And so we haven't really seen, you know, it's going to be 10 years from now mm -hmm. when they're 84 and 85. Mm -hmm. And they're going to reshape, I think, some of our notions of um, what can be achieved. And they're, and they're just, they, they are not going to put up with, I think, some of what, the generations that came before them put up with because they're more demanding period 
and they've had more. Mm-hmm. You know, it's interesting. I uh, this is just sort of a, uh, something that came to mind. Um, uh, that um, oh, I just had a little moment here. I forgot what I was going to say. That is, I, I was thinking of <laughs> whatever. It'll come back. Um, does anybody else have any more questions for Isabel? I'm just thinking about this right to live at risk, which is I've never heard this before. But it also seems that that involves, you know, balancing of services to people. So if a senior is living alone and falls, then there are emergency services that need to come out. So um, is that a funding issue? I mean, and how does that relate to balancing the right to live at risk versus the right not to perhaps um, be a burden on emergency services, for example? It's a good point. And I think it's more, uh, and I often hear it framed also in the burden that a person becomes on their family. Um, mm. And that, that that's the, the more delicate issue, I think, mm. or finer line to walk. Because if we look at the, at the impact on emergency services, I mean, if the topic is ageism, right? And so at 85, we say, uh, the ambulance is getting called too much for you at your home, so we're going to put you in a care home. Mm-hmm. Okay, now let's go down to East Hastings Street and let's look at how many times the ambulance is arriving there. Mm-hmm. And what's the difference? Well, they're not 85 and this person is. Well, that mm-hmm. is ageism in a nutshell, right? Mm-hmm. That we're treating you differently by virtue of your age, not by your risk factor and not by your... Um, uh, uh, impact on the healthcare system, right? Because the people on East Hastings Street have a significant impact on the healthcare system as well, right? So that uh, I think is, you know, the, the the services. I mean, at the end of the day, they're our it's our set of services. So if we decide that what is important is people have to be supported to live at home. Um, to live at risk within reason. Um, you know, there are finite resources available. So what are the resources that we will give to support somebody to live at home? Mm-hmm. I think the more difficult one conversation is the one around the burden on families mm-hmm. and that mom may want to live independently in her house. She's perfectly aware of her risk. Um, she underappreciates potentially the... Um, burden that places on her adult children or uh, what I often saw in home care was the adult children took that burden on mom didn't want them to worry but they did Um, and you know this all weaves back to uh, you know what I was saying at the beginning that one of the difficulties with ageism is that some aspects of it exist because we love our moms and dads Mm -hmm. and as a society we cherish our older adults and want to keep them safe Mm -hmm. and that's a challenge yeah and i i watched my elderly parents um and my mother was very frail but she was also looking after my father who was much frailer right and it was it seemed he, he there was no way he would go into care but it was a real burden on her and on yeah. us mm-hmm. 
Yeah, that's actually the um, situation in my family. Mom, you know, she can't see very well and it's uh, getting worse, but she wants to be in her house and she's basically capable of looking after herself. And uh, my brothers get all torn up about it. And I said, look, if she dies at home, she's died a good death. Mm. She's where she wants to be. She's, 80, she's going to be 89 in a couple of days. Um, but uh, one, one thing that I wanted to ask was about um, boomers. And basically, we're the sandwich generation. Uh, we, we've got, uh, we're, we're helping out uh, the generation below us. And a lot of us are uh, babysitting uh, grandchildren. And then we've got the parents. And that's certainly the situation in my family and in a lot of families. So, yeah, the caregiver, you know, and getting back to the boomers, right? So we are a little self-absorbed, I think is what um, the, the world thinks of us under the boomer <laughs> banner uh, with some justification. Um, you know, what I have, you know, it is interesting um, over my career, the first observation is everybody does not come to the caregiving role equally equipped. Um, I saw people completely surrender their life to their mom or dad. Um, you know, they would leave their job, they would have their mom come and live with them. They, um, you know, and then the full other side, you see the families who can't wait to put mom in the publicly funded care home and sell the house and get the money and all that kind of stuff. That's not very common, but it does happen. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, and then because this is new of the, you know, if we look back to our parents' generation, uh, my mother worked, my mother's actually 93. Mm -hmm. And she had a career, but her mother never worked. Um, and my mother was also an immigrant to this country. So she never looked after her mom. But her mom, I mean, in my grandmother's generation, you looked after, but generally not for that long, um, you know, your parents or your husband's parents, um, because your whole raison d'etre was caregiving because you didn't have a career. So that's been turned on its head in the last 50 to 60 years um, as women have entered the workforce in full uh, force, uh, certainly in the last 30 to 40 years. And we've got, a, you know, the, the things we have yet to come to grips with uh, are um, as the boomer generation enters over the next 10 to 20 years, uh, the senior, senior years, they're entering in them in those years, less likely to be married, less likely to have children. And if they have children, they will have fewer of them. And the children are less likely to live in the same city. And the children, uh, particularly the female children, are likely uh, have a full career. And so what we are going to have to figure out what the, the care looks like and how we're going to support an aging population. And there's no magical solution out there. You know, it's, I use the expression, everyone wants to go to heaven, no one wants to die. Um, we got to pay for it one way or another, right? And I think 
it will be interesting to see what happens over the next two years as we have seen the reaction of Canadians and British Columbians to this revelation of what's been happening in seniors care and this, you know, uh, this is, we will, we can't, we won't stand for this. This has got to be better. Okay, Canada, there's a price tag to that. Um, and so, <laughs> you know, we are going to have to uh, uh, come to grips with that. I hope we will, um, live up to the commitments we've made over the last few months and we won't forget it as the COVID pandemic recedes uh, because that's, you know, and part of me is just sort of as a reasonable person, as a woman who's had a career, as I think all of you have, um, it's sort of, okay, um, if I didn't have the career, I could be the caregiver. I've got the career. I can't, I don't, I can't be the caregiver, but I'm paying for the people who've made the career of being the caregivers by the, frankly, the, the, uh, the income I've earned in my career. I mean, that's sort of the, the great big social compact we've made. And um, we just have to remember that and that there's going to be some shifts happening because proportionately more of us are going to need a little help. I'm wondering about career pathways. Uh, one of the areas that I'm retiring from is, is being a registered dietitian, and I did a lot of home visits. And I see that there's a little bit of a gap in the careers of people who protect, you know, protective services for, uh, for seniors. Because while there's some very loving children who come in and do wonderful things for parents, there are also people who taking a taken advantage of people's property rights, and there just doesn't seem to be enough lawyers or enough people who've got that as a career and whether there's a possibility that some people who are retirees from social work public health etc whether that might be an area where they could get training to be advocates for or people who help caregivers you know just help protect the rights of, of seniors living in their homes or maintaining their you know sheltering at home yeah, it's a good point. Um, lots of people actually think we have too many lawyers. I'm not sure lawyers are the <laughs> are the solution, but I think that you have hit on something, though. Uh, and I'm sorry, I can't see your name in the box. It I'm says Charlotte. By, Charlotte. It says "Powered yes. by Age" podcast yes. in your box. So, Charlotte, but you've hit on something um, actually, and we're looking at it at, in my office right now. Uh, we're doing a systemic review on abuse and neglect, and there is no doubt that we are not adequately uh, capturing um, particularly financial abuse uh, of seniors that are hap that's happening out there. And resources are a big part of that. So whether it's, um, I, I guess the legal system is required at, at a certain point, but it's sort of, even before we get to that, it's a system that, um, you know, the first thing is we have to have a huge education campaign that not only tells people, look for these signs of abuse, we also need an education program that says to older adults, you don't have to put up with this, yeah. right? Because the other thing that I see and have seen in my career is the financial abuse and to a lesser degree, the emotional abuse uh, by 
often family members, not always, sometimes close friends. Uh, and the senior is putting up with it in part because there's a dependency on that person for care, for shelter, or there's, um, uh, you know, issues, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, um, sort of guilt issues around, you know, maybe I wasn't a good mother, so that's why my, you know, uh, I don't mind my son coming into the house and I sign the title over to him. I, I think we have to empower uh, older adults to recognize that they don't need to put up with that, but we have to provide them with a safe haven, um, if that's the case. And I think we need additional resources around investigation and follow-up. I think it's very, very um, hit and miss. And you can tell when we look at the numbers. So when you look at the numbers of actual cases reported through the uh, public guardian trustee or the designated agency, they're way, 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 way too low um, to be accurately um, uh, finding these cases and following up on these cases uh, because they're, you know, most people aren't uh, subject to abuse. That's true. Uh, but some are. Um, and it's, there are some quite devastating cases out there. And yeah, we need to do a better, uh, a better job yeah. Isabel, is there um, sort of anything like an elder abuse hotline or a website of resources for people? Well, it's funny you should mention that, Leslie. So in theory, well, in practice, actually, there's the seniors abuse and information line that a person can call. There's the, you know, we tell people to call the designated agency, which is the health authority. There's the public guardian and trustee. But I, we, our office did a, a public survey. We did a, a random survey and asked people, you know, do you know who to call and the awareness? Part of the problem is it's a bit disjointed. You know, you've got your public guardian and trustee, you've got your designated agency, you've got sale, you've got the police. And I think what we're going to be looking at is recommending a single portal, if you will, uh, with an easy number, um, a, you know, that you call to report it and then you know it gets triaged to to whether it's a police matter or whether it's this matter or that matter but um it 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 is an area where we've been a little too hands-off i was surprised to learn for example that the most of the health authorities who are the designated agencies now when they get a call of uh, concern that someone is um, neglected, for example, self-neglect, or they refer it to the police for a wellness check, the RCMP for a wellness check. Though, I, that's not a good, that's not what police are trained to do, mm -hmm. right? To mm -hmm. pick up and having a police officer come to your door um, is, first of all, the neighbors are going to see it. Mm -hmm. um, versus, you know, the social worker uh, who's going to come in plain clothes and, you know, blend in and is accustomed to um, and is trained to find common ground as opposed to being trained to uh, detect criminal activity and uh, enforcement issues. So I think, uh, yeah, we need, I agree, Charlotte, we, it is an area uh, where we, 
And it's not just BC, it's sort of everywhere. We really haven't paid enough attention to it. We talk about it a lot, but we don't really do anything much about it. Speaking of doing things, this group always wants to know, are there any suggested actions? What are the ways that we could connect with you or connect with uh, agencies to be able to make some of the types of changes or help some of the changes we've talked about come into being? Well, certainly um, when it comes to my office, we always welcome uh, input in any in a variety of formats. This is an example. Um, people can write letters, right? And what we do is we build the, for want of a better world word, we build the case, right? So, you know, we look at um, what do we hear from the community about the most, and that will maybe uh, tell us where we might do a systemic review. It certainly helps when I uh, advocate for things that need to be changed or made better. And I think in the community at, at large, I think just continuing to raise the voice around, um, I think ageism is uh, an important message. And it isn't out there as much. We talk a lot about some of the quote unquote issues affecting seniors. We do focus a lot on the issues related to uh, the care of the most frail elderly but that's a very small percentage of seniors, right? And so these other issues um, I think are, uh, are important. And I know that at the beginning when I was listening to Ruth um, talk about the uh, issues around um, in low income seniors, very much. I think there's a perception out there that seniors are for the most part well off. That's not correct. Um, one of the challenges is that poverty amongst seniors is not as visible mm -hmm. as other poverty, right? And so one of the things I highlight is in BC, about 25, about a quarter of our seniors, over 200,000, live on an income that is less than a minimum wage job, yeah. right? Those are the GIS, a percentage, a high percentage of our GIS recipients. Yeah. And it, that is compounded by uh, a number of healthcare expenses that aren't covered in our healthcare system, that aren't healthcare issues for younger people, but are healthcare issues for older people um, because they can't do, some, some, not all, can't do things for themselves that they used to be able to do. So they have to hire somebody and that costs money and it's not covered by the healthcare system. Um, and so we've got to find a better way of addressing that. And you know, in this pandemic, one of the things that was highlighted was how important it is to quote unquote, be virtually connected. Well, virtually connected requires internet. Internet's $1,200 a year, yeah. right? It's pretty hard. Um, I personally have lived in a household where we don't have cable TV. So all we want is the phone and the internet. That's all we want. And it's over a hundred dollars a month. And um, if your income's twenty thousand dollars a year, you don't have that. And so, what is that? And if you're um, and during the pandemic, you know the libraries where a lot of people go to use the internet closed. Senior centers where they would go to use the internet closed. Closed. Um, so, it highlighted the pro you know poverty 
has many faces and one these things you don't think about you realize when a whole bunch of things closed uh oh what about the people who don't have internet and they don't have it because they can't afford it <laughs> and that would be disproportionately older people yeah yeah, a, a lot of really serious issues to think about. Yeah. So thank you so much, Isabel, for coming in, and Gail. And I'd like to thank our other guests, Don Davis and Ruth Kozak. Um, I've noted in the chat window, there's some information here uh, from Ruth, uh, the, the link for access copyright and for public lending rights and information on the CERB grants. And I know Isabel said there were some problems with the senior abuse line, but I've put that number in because, you know, obviously there are emergency situations that crop up. And also the website for Isabel's office, if anybody needs to follow. I just, that would be good. To just a point of information here. Car 87 um, is a police officer and a psychiatric social worker. And if a person asks for a car 87 uh, and they're not crazy busy, you'll get better treatment. Um, the person would get better treatment in the health check. They would, but you've still got um, the issue. Uh, you know, there are situations where it's not going to be helpful to have somebody in uniform seen. Right going to a door um, and it's going to be the least helpful or the most problematic if there's concern that there's abuse by a family member it there's just a uh, there's a better uh, way to do it um, and we sort of used to do it that way it's interesting how we're sort of we've been moving up this uh, line toward um, using the police for things that the police were not, are not designed to do. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it, it, has, it has had some consequences as I think we've heard about um, in the last few months, right? And it's, no, no, it's, it's not, a, uh, it's not a, a necessarily a bad reflection on um, the police department. They, have they're trained to do a certain thing and they're not trained to be social workers i wonder um and this is this would be i tried to get the uh, provincial minister on board um, he sent uh, some really nice responses to questions but uh it's a question i would ask the province and since you have big connections with the province um how then uh, can we move the funding for the so-called wellness checks which kind of scare me as these are reported um, how can we uh, uh, move that money over to, say, the um, Ministry of uh, Mental Illness, or I don't know which appropriate ministry that would be? Well, I think it's, to me, it's a, there's just a, a more fundamental operational issue, which is um, the health authority should be, if it is the designated agency that's receiving the call, mm -hmm. um, it should be responding to, um, to the situation. The rationale given in many cases is the um, they don't know what situation they're walking into. And this is a delicate balance, right, between uh, workplace safety um, and the need to, and we certainly see this a lot in home support, and um, the need to respond in a certain way. And, and 
I think that that's how we drifted towards using the police for the wellness checks. I think we drifted towards that over the last few years because we were concerned about the safety of the health authority person being sent into a situation where there might be uh, violence or danger. And so, and just as police officers aren't trained to be social workers, social workers aren't trained for those, the, the, the physical violent situations either. We're trained to be, to diffuse uh, a confrontation for sure. Uh, but, it, you know, there's a bit of a, of a challenge there and a balancing act. Um, but I think it's, I think we have to recognize, I think we can do a better job upfront of screening mm -hmm. and we could mitigate the dangerous situations quite dramatically rather than taking a blanket approach, which is what we appear to be doing now. Wow. All three of you have given us some wonderful points that we can continue on. Leslie and Gail, thank you for organizing such a wonderful presentation today. Ruth and Isabel, thank you so much for coming and spending this amount of time. We can see as we plan topics, one of the ways we get our topics for future months are things where there's so much interest. So definitely, Pat, around the co-op housing, I can see where you might work on organizing a program around that. Uh, we could definitely talk about the shift in funding that within the protest movement, people have talked rather than so much saying defund the protest, making a shift. And uh, just uh, the area of other training, ways to enable seniors to remain in the workplace. So thank you for a wonderful program today for questions, answers, and we look forward to seeing you again on Powered by Age, creating the age-friendly city. Thank you.